in God's providence, I don't think there could be a better way for me to kind of end this two-year term than to dwell on the attribute of God's justice with you guys this morning. Um, not sure if y'all missed it last week, but we wrapped up two years of Luke. I think that deserves a round of applause. Um, it has been a journey, and uh, Alex did a great job. If you didn't listen or weren't here last week, um, it's up on Apple Podcasts. You can go listen to the message. Just incredible. On his resurrection, all that it means of Jesus being revealed in the word at the table and through the spirit, dynamite. But today, we're going to be looking at the attribute of God's justice. So when I say the word justice, or when I refer to someone's action <coughs> being just or someone being just, what immediately comes to mind for you? I want you to take a second to just think through that a little bit. Because I think it's helpful as we talk through these topics to have something mentally in our head to go along with it. If you're somewhat juvenile like me, you may immediately think of the uh, parody videos of Batman that came out like years ago of him just saying justice in like the lowest grovelly voice. And uh, man, they're incredible. If you haven't watched those, that's another one to watch. Put it on your list. Or if you're slightly more serious, uh, maybe historical, you think of a king. And he's sitting on a throne, he's got a massive scepter, and the innocent is brought before him, and he rules to protect them, and the rule breakers brought before him, and he rules that that you know, person is sent to jail or, or worse. But if you think about modern day context, or our cultural context for justice, you're probably like me where you think of, a, of legal situations, you think of a courtroom, you think of a, a radio, I think of a judge, I'm transported there. I think of a judge. I, I see the jury. Um, I'm not sitting being judged in this situation, <laughs> um, but I'm sitting there observing. That's where my mind goes. And unfortunately, probably for a lot of us too, we think of a lot of instances of injustice when we say the word justice. And um, it's really sad. It's, it's, it is the reality of a broken world tainted by sin. And I've shared some some of this with you guys or a few of you guys at least our small group but one of the most like distinct moments that I can remember of just injustice being ruled out in a situation like this happened to my oldest sister uh, in New York and she's an incredible person lives in New York her and her um, her husband couldn't have kids so they fostered to adopt and like many who have gone through the county for this foster to adopt you know process they were met with just injustice after injustice inside the courtroom. And just terrible situation, really. I mean, a little context to the story. She, you know, started the program, and then they were like, hey, we have these two boys that are my nephews now, by God's grace, and they are, um, they're about to be freed. That's the, the term they use, meaning like they're about to be freed from, legally from their parents so that they can be adopted. And, um, so they started the process, and that sounds somewhat terrible, but it was a really bad situation for these boys. They were like six weeks and two years old, I think, um, just living in like a, a drug-ridden apartment, pretty much. Their parents had been given time after time chances, and just hope, somewhat hopelessly in that moment, addicted to drugs and in and out of prison and jail, and arrested, and he punched an officer in the courtroom once. I mean, just really terrible situation. And 
This process did not take a couple months. It, it delayed regularly, as things like this kind of do. And that was really painful because in the meantime, they had to share custody somewhat with the, the father. And then the day came. The day came in court for them to be freed, these boys, so that my sister, you know, within you know, hopefully a month or two could move forward with official adoption. And the judge, as my sister reports it, was pretty flustered by the case that he had before it. Someone was like screaming and yelling at him and he was just like not having it over it. And that's kind of the worst if you've been in a legal situation where the judge has just had like someone yelling at them and they're like, okay, who am I looking at? And that really unfortunately happened here. He looked at this paperwork that the caseworkers had spent over a year preparing to defend this case of like, no, there's like foster parents that need to adopt these kids and they should not be in the care of, of the father at this point. The, the mother had already released um, her rights there and he just overlooked it. He was just frustrated and in a moment he overlooked the whole case, the pinnacle that the, that the last piece that the caseworker needed to present and he reset the whole process in that moment. The whole process, like years of building this thing. And it was terrible. I mean, it was like, for my sister and her husband especially, it was immense pain. That's the only way I can describe it. Probably the most, the terrible point in their life would be around that moment. And they spent the next year and a half like hiring private lawyers to help the caseworkers build the case. And, and our, our family was just enraged. It was an injustice. It was something not just for my sister and brother-in-law, but for these boys that needed to be protected. And there was laws on the books to protect these boys, but was not executed by this judge. And it really, you know, it severely affected them, you know, mentally and emotionally in the meantime. And um, he should have acted. He should have acted. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It wasn't just. And it was a struggle. It was an immense struggle. And if you're like me, you can probably feel just hearing this situation, frustration, right? You feel that tension inside of you. And I want to tell you, the reason for that is because of God's justice, because of God's righteousness. That's why you feel that tension, because something's not right here. Some things should have played out in a different way. So when I say the word justice, biblically, it embodies the idea of uh, moral equity, not, not equality, equity. It's very important. And inequity is the exact opposite, like injustice, the absence of equity. And when I say equity, I mean, you know, the correct decision being made, fairness, adherence to a law or standard that's previously agreed upon. And I want to define another word here, which is judgment. When that judge, you know, cracked the, I don't know if he actually had a hammer that he hit, but when he, he said that, there was action that was taking place. There was the application of equity, or you would hope, at least. So when we think of justice, or we think about God's nature of being just, there is a distinction that we have to be very careful of and make for, uh, for ourselves between what we would call justice in this world or how we see it played out in a human court versus how God enacts just, justice. And the fundamental piece of this is that God's justice is really just the name that we give to how God is. Let me say that again. God's justice is just the name that we give to the way that God is 
Nothing more. I'm going to look at Deuteronomy 32.4 here. I think, yeah, awesome. Um, little context. This is taken from the Song of Moses, which in a lot of ways is Moses' final call to God's people to live in adherence to God's righteousness before he transfers leadership to Joshua. And in this, uh, he says, or I guess he sings because it's a song. He says, the rock... His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. You see that? Do you see how God defines this? He's not adhering to something. And Moses wished for God's people to know this. He, he really wanted them. I mean, this is like his, you know, some of his final statements that he's making. But more importantly, God wanted his people to know this. And he wants us to know this. To truly know, to truly believe, and to truly act in accordance with this truth that God is just. That is that God in himself is just or right or true. Just like we might say, we're, we're pretty comfortable, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us are pretty comfortable with saying God is love. You know, it's something that rolls off the tongue pretty regularly, especially at a wedding. And we can say that his every action defines love. It's the pinnacle of it. He is, he equals it. It's the same thing with justice. We have to say that when it comes to God. It's just how he acts. It's God in consistency with what he has already said and done, acting in accordance with himself. It's really what it is. He's not compelled, like this judge in my sister's case, to adhere to some standard that is set outside or above him. He is the standard. His very actions produce the standard for us to see. Tozer says it this way in uh, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, justice, when used of God, is God simply acting like himself in a given situation? It's a really good way, very simple way to put it. And another way to think of it is that justice is his righteousness in action. He is righteous, right? Like he he's always acts correctly or right. He defines the standard. And it's righteousness that is so closely tied throughout the scriptures, it's almost interchangeable with justice when it's applied to God. We see this, um, Psalm 89, you don't have to turn there, but he says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. They make up the foundation of it. It's who he is, it's in his character. And I would say to to maybe divide these words a little bit more, because um, I think it's helpful. I would say righteousness characterizes all that he does. He's morally and ethically right. He acts in keeping with what he has said. And justice is the characteristic of God upholding the standard that he himself has created. And then judgment would be the enactment of it and action taken on this, right? So this is important for us. And the reason that this is really important, specifically that we define that, that God is not adhering to some rule outside of himself, is because this is often the foundation of where our view of God goes wrong. This is often the point where when we, we think of God, we become frustrated or careless with our words about who God is. Because we're trying to force God, whether we know it or not, through a standard of righteousness that we have defined. Or that our culture has defined, you know? And it is true that God's nature, his moral code, 
It's, it's imprinted on us. We're made in his image, Margot Day. Apologists and C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity, they have a lot to say on this topic. It's called the moral argument. Uh, Tyler could tell you a lot more about that. But my purpose here is really not to get into all that today, but just to say that he has defined the standard. And being fallen human beings that we are in a world filled with brokenness of sin, that law and moral code of God has been distorted. And that's what we feel. That's what we, when we're thinking about that case of my sister, that's the, the tension or the frustration or the anger even that we feel in here is that distortion of his holiness. And it's distorted actually inwardly in us as human beings which is then felt outwardly in how we see justice enacted in our world and then ultimately in how we view God. You see how this, this works here. And that's why it's so necessary to look at the word of God, his own word about what he calls just and right, about his own nature. That's where we have to start. That's the premise. That's the foundational layer. We must look to God to learn about God. And it's given to us through his word is the very reason that we're talking about it today is because this attribute of God, what it does is it clearly points us in a way where our eyes are, are just shifted to see God through a new lens, through his word and to glorify him because of it. That's the crux of this to glorify him. We glorify God because we more clearly see who he is and how he acts and how he is right and just and the world sees it as well. And then we can worship him. We can praise him. We can know him more fully. He does this all. He reveals himself to us, as we'll see, specifically through Christ, so that we can worship him. Sam said that a little bit earlier. And he doesn't even have my notes. It's incredible. So that all humanity might clearly see that he is God alone, that he alone is purely just, that he alone is purely good, that we can praise him. That's the study of all of this. And when we look to scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, this is where, again, my brain goes and we look for stories of God's justice. I, I immediately go to Egypt. You know, the, these people, God's people wronged over the centuries you know, in Egypt, kept in captivity, enslaved. And God comes in and he brings justice here. Yeah, and harsh justice. I mean, he kills all of their, their livestock, their, their, um, their grain, their firstborn, turns the Nile to blood, destroys their army in the Red Sea. He saves them, right? Justice enacted. We might even think of God's just judgment against his own people once they hit the wilderness, especially. And uh, those storylines, man, where we just see how they, they, um, they fail to adhere to the covenants that they make with God and God makes with them. And they're rebuked, they're chastised. Several times they're defeated and even carried away by other nations. And God is just in this. We see the culmination of his justice on Calvary, right? Executing his wrath that's poured out on Christ for our sins. These actions, all of these actions, they are put on display for the world to see, for you and I to remember, for stories to be retold and retold and read and read so that we might clearly see who God is 
and glorify him as the one and only holy God. It is so important. It's so important because we can still struggle, even as believers, with the concept of God being just in our lives. We look around at the earth. We think about, you know, situations like I, I, I just shared. We see brokenness. We see, you know, seemingly evil people getting away with atrocities or we think they're getting away with it. We see sweet family members suffering in ways that don't make any sense. And we experience even injustices against ourselves. And sometimes they're just in small ways where like a boss mistreats you or you're misunderstood in a relationship with a friend. These are elements of justness that we're talking about. And in light of these, how can we confidently say as a believer that our sovereign king is the judge of all the earth and will do what is right. That's Genesis 18. Or Zephaniah 3, 5, that the just Lord is in our midst and he will not do iniquity. How can we say that? The answer to that, to our confidence in God's justice, is the gospel. And I'm not just saying that as like the grown-up you know, Sunday school response where every Sunday school, you know, answer seems to be like Jesus is the right answer. And then you graduate and you just say the gospel is the right answer. That's not what I mean at all. I want to define this. I want us to wrap our heads around it. The good news. It's the good news of Christ coming, living perfectly righteous life and dying on our behalf, paying the debts of our sins. So many of the words that we sang today. And it's because of his sacrifice that God justly redeems us, adopts us as sons. It's the reality of this gospel that we can confidently say God is just because our salvation is proof of God's justice both in the, the here and now and in eternity. It's the proof. And as believers, we need to know that God is, in, is just in the midst of this world. We need to know this. We need the comfort not only that, to say that God is sovereign, that he rules over everything, but to say that our sovereign king is also just. That's the comfort that we have as believers, that he is also just and that he will judge all things rightly in the end. So let me ask that question again, <clears throat> and then we'll actually start this sermon here. Um, I'm joking. How can we say confidently God is just. The gospel, it demonstrates the ultimate justice and righteousness of God. It's the gospel. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 1. <clears throat> we're going to sit in Romans for a little bit here. And we're going to start in verse 16. This is Paul. He's writing and he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God, he says, is revealed in the gospel. What does that mean? It means that if we, we go through the gospel narrative, if we look at the, the good news and where it comes from being good, it means that in the very beginning, we can look all the way back to Genesis, when he told Adam and Eve and set forth his rule and consequences to breaking his rule and says, don't eat of this tree or you'll surely die. And two sentences later, they eat of the fruit. 
And from the cascading moment down, from that disobedient moment down, all of creation is tainted by sin. Rebellion against an infinitely holy God, cosmic treason, as my brother-in-law says, and it is, and in God's own words, it demanded a just judgment of death for them. That's what it demanded. And from that point forward, also, humanity was distorted, as we talked about earlier, specifically on what is right. What is that standard? What is just? What is holy? What is good? What God had defined as those things, it was exchanged by our world with a debased mind, hopelessly running after evil. If we continue on in Romans 1, we'll see Paul explain this. And it's so, so tainted, our view of what is right, that God has to etch into stone his law and give it to his people. To be like, I don't know how I can make this more clear. Like, this is it right here. To explain to them very clearly what it means to be right and live justly in the sight of God and act in accordance with it. And he makes a covenant through Moses. We're in you know, Exodus 19 here. And he says, you know, if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, You'll be my special possession. You know, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And Moses goes down. He reports to the people. Verse, chapter 19, verse 8. They accept the covenant. And they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But the story doesn't end well either. No sooner does Moses deliver the law, make the covenant, and the Israelites are worshiping idols. The Old Testament captures scene after scene of God's people found to live up to the standard of holiness and justice and righteousness, forsaking God. And they're given chance after chance. They're giving, you know, revelation through prophets, through judges, through kings to make this more clear. But it's clear that humanity, so tainted by sin, is incapable of living up to the letter of the law in a way that would justify and save them. That's what's clear. Let's skip ahead to Romans 3, if you're still in Romans there. Paul picks up on this point in verse 19. And we're going to settle here between 19 and 26 for a bit. Now we know, he says in verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul is saying here, everyone will be held accountable for their actions, their sin. They'll be unable to say anything that will justify themselves with their own works on judgment day. In other words, our righteous God would not be just if he did not condemn them based on their sin and failure to adhere to the holy standards that God has made them aware of very clearly. So let's read on. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, the righteousness, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is how God's righteousness is manifest now through the person and work of Christ. He's the only he's the one that communicates most clearly the righteous standard of God. Remember, Jesus is God. 
Therefore, he is just. His ways, his every action define righteousness for us. And through the redeeming of God's people, this righteousness will be made even more clearly on display. Let's keep reading here. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh-oh. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Thank God. Through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is how justification is made possible. How we know, how we are now able to be cleared of our guilt before a holy God without God being unjust. It would be unjust for him to pardon us if it were not for Christ living in perfect accordance to his own righteous standards, fulfilling the law and taking the debt of our sin on himself. God's wrath poured out on him on Calvary. And it's through faith in Christ as the Messiah, as God, as the righteous one, that his righteousness is in his adherence to the law, it's, it's imputed to us. It's a word we don't use often. It's, it's given to us, and it's given to us in a way that when God looks at us, he looks at us through the lens of Christ. Think about that, like putting on goggles. That, that he looks at us, not in our filth, not in our sin, but when he sees us, if we are in Christ, if we have faith in Christ, he sees Christ's righteousness when he sees us. And he declares us legally and fully free of debt that our sin has occurred. That is mercy. That is mercy. And this, again, is where we need to make that clear distinction between a human judge showing mercy and God. If a judge was not to enforce the laws on a guilty person, yeah, he might be seen as merciful to the debtor, But he's seen as unjust to the debt holder who's not getting paid. Think about the situation that I, you know, I shared with my sister. He might have been seen as merciful to that man. But to everyone else that was looking on from our side, we're like, dude, what did you just do? This is unjust because no one's paying the debt here. The law is not being upheld. Do you see the distinction? But with the gospel, it's paid. It's paid. Getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's keep reading here. This was to show, I'm in uh, verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see why his righteousness is demonstrated in that way. He had passed over former sins leading up to Christ's death. But now Christ's work on Calvary, God's wrath, you know, unleashed on Christ, his body broken, his blood poured out. The price is paid for all of humanity in this moment. Past, present, future sins, all poured out, all paid. God's not letting anything slip. Did you know that? When it comes to your sin, he doesn't let a single thing slip. No, Christ has paid every single debt, every penny, every single thing that we owe. And better yet, we're given a receipt. We're given proof of this. 
It's Christ's resurrection that is proof of that. It's Christ's resurrection that is proof of his justice. Proof that God is just in declaring you righteous. When he resurrected, it was proof that the debt was paid. That it was accepted. And Jesus was the worthy ransom. And that we're debt free. It's the proof of that. Just let, let that sink in for a second. That, that we know that God is just because the gospel provides proof that the law, that God's law, the standard that he has set and the reward and punishment that he has promised in judgment that has been adhered down to, has been adhered to down to every single line item of restitution that was required. Of all of the brokenness and injustice we see play out in this world in front of us, I can promise you that God not enforcing his justice on Calvary would have been infinitely worse. Think about that. Because he would have proved the opposite. That God is not consistent. That he's not consistently just. That his promises can't be relied on. What does that say about our salvation? If that that was the truth, we would be walking around wondering, is God going to overlook my sin today and let it slip? Or is he going to demand the full extent of what he said? He demanded the full extent. He did. He enforced his law, judging Christ in our place. And he proves to us, he proves to us that God is not just just now, but he is eternally just. Because there is eternal ramifications to this. He was willing to sacrifice his own son, his own son to save us. And it was the only way that he could And through it, he proved that he was just, that he means what he says, that his ways are right and will be upheld, and we can take it to the bank. In eternity, on Judgment Day, when every living being will be judged for their action, and judgment will be declared with eternal ramifications, there's going to be justice. Let's look at Acts 17 real quick. Verse 30. It says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Isn't that incredible? It's profound. Our assurance that God will do what he says, that he is right, that he will, he is just, he'll judge accordingly, is seen in the resurrection. We just got done hearing about last week. It's seen in the resurrection of Jesus in the gospel. And as believers, this is our dearest hope. This is our dearest joy. This is our living hope that we just got done singing about. That on that day, God will justly declare us eternally free because we have faith in Christ, in Christ's righteousness. Do you have faith in Christ? Do you believe on him today for salvation? Do you call on the Lord, call him Lord and Savior of your life? Do you have faith in him and Christ's work on the cross? Do you see that he is the only way that you could be declared debt-free and not suffer the wrath of God justly for your sins? This is the only way that we'll stand before our just and holy God. It is through Christ. 
And that is the greatest joy and hope for us as believers. You see, his justice, this attribute, it affects everything. Everything. It affects how we view and respond to salvation. And, and maybe we wouldn't say this out loud, but many times, many of us, including myself, walk around essentially believing that God hasn't justified us in Christ. Believing that the guilt of our sin is still on our heads, still you know, burdened on our backs, that God doesn't love us, and that when he looks at us, he sees just filthy rags that are unworthy to speak to him. We think that sometimes. And we need to be told time and time again that that's not true. That's not the gospel. And of course, we're right to feel godly sorrow for sin. It'd be very concerning if we don't. We should seek sorrow that leads to repentance. Very important. But we need to be reminded at the same time that Jesus carried the debt of our sin to the cross. And his resurrection is proof that that debt is paid. And when God looks at us, he looks at us in Christ's righteousness. And he wants nothing more for us than to run to him with our sin. To run to him. Not run the other way. Think about the prodigal. The father, he wanted him to run to him. He wept as he ran to him. Sometimes we can, we can struggle with the opposite, maybe. We can be, you know, from the prodigal story, we can be the other brother, the prideful brother, where we can, you know, not see the justification of God for other believers that are in our lives, the mercy that he's extended to them. And we can treat others as if they haven't been justified. We, we, we do this sometimes when they sin against us, which will happen, and we do it in the form of guilt and retribution and vindication and cutting people off, you know, putting distance between us and them. And again, there should be godly repentance happening in light of sin between one another, 100%. But regardless, we are told to forgive even if they haven't even asked for forgiveness. That's what we're told to do. Because God has forgiven and he's justified us. And other times, we, we can struggle with the aspect of, of God maybe not saving others, not showing mercy. And this is, this is a hard one because we can never fully wrap our minds around the will of God. Um, one thing Piper says is he said, we, we are rarely given the answers to micro situations, but we're all, the Bible says lots about the macro, about the big story here. We can say, that God loves, he invites all to repent and to follow him. We just read this in Acts 17. He commands even, everyone come, repent. He sent his son and poured out his wrath on his son so that they could do this. And at the same time, we know in Exodus 33 that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. When we look at Romans 1, we have to look here and we see how God has made known his presence and yet some don't believe. He's made it clear even in creation, it says. And yet they still choose a life of sin and do not come to the fountain of saving grace. And we can't fully map out, you know, the distance between human responsibility and his sovereignty. But because of the gospel, we can confidently say that he is consistent with himself. And there is no way he will condemn the innocent or clear the guilty. Not going to happen. 
And the fact that this justice, this very justice that we're talking about, is the means by which the revelation of this, of his character, by which others will be saved. Isn't that powerful? It's because of the righteousness of God on display in the gospel that we have confidence that we have confidence for questions like this, like, like how could the Lord be just, you know, sovereignly just and allow for unjust things to take place in this world? Truly painful things and hurtful things, injustices, true injustices. To go back to that courtroom analogy, in the courtroom of the kingdom of God, all the world will be assembled together before God in the just and righteous judge, and he will judge the living and dead, living and dead with eternal ramification. We have to cling to this. And I know it's hard. I know we're going to wrestle with this. I struggle with this, with injustices. But we also have to be reminded that he's not the author of these things. That ultimately injustices, unbelief, they're, they're products of the fall. And it's sin and the brokenness that we see in the world is the trickle effect of these things. He's not the author of temptation. He's not the author of sin. He's not the author of suffering. And he promises that he will judge these things to the fullest extent of the law. But there's, there's hope. There's hope even in injustices. Because God uses these things for his glory and for our benefit. Isn't that just amazing? That whatever the devil uses and intends you know, for evil, God turns around and he uses it for the good of those that love him. James is an incredible book to go to on this topic. And he kind of makes clear here that in the midst of trial, we can be reminded that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be God's condemnation, but his purification. Let me say that again. Because of Christ, because of his suffering, our suffering is not God's condemnation, but instead, it's for purification that he gives it. When we face moments of injustice in our lives, someone doing something that's not right and wrong against us, we can be comforted with the fact that Jesus faced this, that we're sharing in his suffering in a way, and that God's, God will condemn, he will judge, and he will use his justice to save others. There's no need for vengeance. There's no need for vindication on our part. He will do this. He promises he will do this. And, and I know I say this, and I want to bring it like a, a level lower for us because we, we can think in the macro. We think about that judge, right? Situations outside of ourselves. But on the day-to-day, we see, you know, these effects of us struggling with his justice in small ways too. I think probably the most potent that I've experienced is in relationships when we're wronged. I said that before. But we want to be set right. I want to be set right. I want to be, like when something's clearly long, wrong, you know, or I've been wronged, I want that person to know that. <laughs> I want them to pay. I want them to feel the weight of what they have done. And it's not right. Our pursuit or our desire for vindication, it actually demonstrates a lack of understanding of God's justice. That's what it does. And we're in a way telling God, you're not a just judge. I have to take this into my own hands. That your eternal judgment isn't good enough. 
It's not enough. But James 1 says, count it all joy when we meet trials. Why? Because it's purifying us. He says, the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness, perseverance. He says, don't be vindictive. Don't be angry. Skip down towards the end of the chapter, chapter one. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Someone needs to hear that this morning. The anger of man, it does not produce the righteousness of God. We have to be very cautious with anger. You know, we can quickly say, oh, it's righteous anger that I'm feeling here. But what anger does is it reveals in us what we love. Something that we love is being challenged when we're angry. And we need to be aware of that to root that out to say, what is being challenged here? Because a lot of times for me, my anger stems from my, my love for self, my own self-preservation, right? That I'm going to be seen as, as right especially when I'm wronged by someone. It's not righteous anger. Instead, we should be resting, resting in God, resting in his final judgment, viewing others through the lens of God's work on the cross and forgiving them. This is the command to forgive our enemies. And we can do that only because God saved and justified us when we are enemies of his. Think about that. We need to be told that we were enemies of God more often, I'm pretty sure. We need to be reminded of that. It's only through his free gift. And justice, ultimate justice, it will be poured out to the full extent to the glory of God. So I'll have the the band come up here. Um, I'm going to conclude with a few charges for our church here. Believer, Christian, fellow Solo City church member, look to God. Know that He is just. Know that He is God in His ways, His every action. They define righteousness and justice. Know that. In moments when you are tempted to distrust Him or His ways, specifically in your life, when you're tempted to think that these are not right, Look to the gospel. God put his justice on display on the cross for the world to see. And he did it so that all would see and glorify him. That they would fall to their knees and worship him. And that, that needs to be constantly reminded to us. That his ways are consistent. That he has declared, what he has declared from the beginning of time will be completed. That he didn't spare his own son to provide a means of escape for us. But also to prove that he is just. If you don't know Christ today, if you have not claimed Christ's righteousness, pray to him this morning. He is so willing, so able to save you today. Christ's righteousness is the only means It's the only means that we can be saved when that day comes. Christian, when you're in moments of suffering and struggling to see how God could possibly be just and right in the here and now, I want you to know that it's okay to struggle. It's okay for us to struggle. We're going to feel that tension. And we're feeling it because God is righteous. But we also 
We need to know that we can trust him when we don't fully understand because we won't. But my charge here is don't run from him in trials. Don't hide. Don't be absent from his word or from his people. Say that again, from his people. Embrace them. Embrace them. Bring your struggles to God. Bring your struggles to the church. Because we all, we all, myself included, we have a constant need for our hearts to be reminded of the truth that God is just. And we need to be reminded of this gospel so constantly. Because the gospel proves, it proves his righteous reign and rule. And one day, one day, all things, all people, all actions will be brought before the righteous judge who will bring an eternal just verdict that will exceed any sort of vindication or vengeance that we could pursue on this earth. Remember that we're promised the hope of eternity in the midst of struggle, eternity with him in heaven, and that these events are struggling with injustices in this world. They point to the truth that this earth is not our home. The joys and pleasures of this life, good things that God has given us, they are just a shadow of what is to come. We are squarely in the midst of God's saving plan for his people. And we participate in that in proclaiming his justice. So respond to injustices around you by resting in God and with his righteous actions. Take them on yourselves. Act justly. Follow Christ's example. Turn the other cheek. Be obedient to the Lord in his ways and let the zeal for that obedience stem from the free justification that we have received in Christ as a gift of grace. Proclaim this justice to those around you. It is the means of their salvation.